Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Yo, technology, what is it all about? And that makes this an extremely compelling financial argument to make that, look, if, if a machine can automate these processes and it's 10,000 times cheaper than a human, you have to look at that very seriously. You can't just say, well, no, that's we're not going to do that, right? If it were 20% cheaper, you might say, well, 20% cheaper doesn't make any sense, but 10,000 yeah. times cheaper is compelling. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am back from my unexpected and unplanned sojourn into the U.S. justice system last week. So thank you all for understanding. Um, you know, one of these days I'll be I'll be happy to do jury duty, but I think, you know, that day is like years and years away. Because, you know, when you have a job and kids and just lots going on in life, being told that you have to take a forced five-week interlude where you get paid 15 bucks a day to spend hours in a courtroom. Man, it's like, uh, it's an ask. And I know it's important, my civic duty, etc. cetera, uh, but I have to say I was glad I was deselected last week. But I digress. That's not why you're here. You are here to talk about or hear about artificial intelligence because that's the only thing happening at the moment obviously it's not but it's uh you know it's the thing and we have a really great guest this week to talk about it his name is matt welsh he is the founder of a startup in the great state of washington called fixie.ai which is building you'll not be surprised ai tools specifically the layer that will connect businesses and enterprises with this very fast-growing class of large language models and other kind of fancy AI programs that seem to be cropping up uh, every day these days. And Matt is interesting because I came across him, as you'll soon hear, because he gave this very provocative presentation that predicted the end of software coding as we know it and how you could replace you know, a pricey Silicon Valley software engineer with an AI that is 10,000 times cheaper. You heard that right. So he dubbed it the... 12 cent engineer which is just uh, quite a provocative term obviously anyhow i thought it was a fascinating way to think about ai especially as we fret about this brave new era of super smart machines and what it might mean for you and your job my job 
Welsh is credible. He he taught at Harvard. He worked at Google for years. He was briefly at Apple. He's done the startup thing before. So you may agree or disagree with what he says. And he talks about how he got to that 12 cent figure. It's not just pulled out of thin air. You can agree or disagree, but he does have credibility. So anyhow, that is what you're about to hear, um, how the 12 cent engineer is the future of software engineering and what this AI era means for work, for life, for business, etc. It's a good one. Enjoy. Where are you calling from? This this little booth in which you are uh, stationed. Yes, I'm I'm in Seattle, and uh, we have a small office space here in the university district. And fortunately, they have these uh, uh, very soundproof and extremely well air conditioned booths. Oh, lovely! So that's why I'm wearing a heavy jacket. I know. I was going to say you look like you're all bundled up there. Well, so I was so interested to have you on because I, along with every other tech journalist in the Western world has been, I've been writing about AI nonstop for the past several months. And I think in my travels came across a presentation that's, that you had given that's, that someone had pointed to on Twitter, whatever it may be. So high level, could you talk about the main takeaway of that presentation and then what Fixie your company is? Sure. So, you know, I've been working in the field of AI now for a couple of years and the thing that has been most remarkable about that has been the sheer pace of innovation in this space. It would be as if, you know, computer graphics went from Pong to Red Dead Redemption 2 in the span of like six months. Right. And that has, you know, understandably caused a lot of people to really question where is this technology going and what does this mean for our society? But in particular, you know, as a software developer and someone who's been writing code for my entire life, you know, since I was maybe nine or 10 years old. And you are how old now? 48. 48 <laughs> so something right. like so 30, 40 years, you know, something like 40 years. The thing that was extremely interesting about this technology for me was the fact that it is now possible for an AI model to write programs for you. And we've seen in the last couple of weeks, people taking ChatGPT and with no programming background, getting ChatGPT to, you know, build a game or make a website. So the question in my head was, where is this all going? What does this mean for the field of computing and, and in particular for software engineering as a discipline? And my honest belief was that we are going into an era where the idea of humans writing computer programs is going to become obsolete. Mm. Maybe not in three years, maybe not in five years, but at some point in the not too distant future. And if you think about the way in which the field is structured today, you know, you have vast numbers of people writing software as a profession. Yeah. And so the question really is what, what happens when that process becomes automated? And you don't need to pay people to do that. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of levels to that, right? Because I'm here in Oakland, just across the bay from San Francisco, just down the road from Menlo Park, Palo Alto, et cetera. And I'm sure you've been to like the the mega campuses, Google, Meta, et cetera. Oh, yeah. And engineers will t regularly take home seven-figure salaries between cash, bonus, shares, et cetera. 
I mean, it is like, you know, the, right. the mythical 10x engineer, the engineers that just like are the, your stars that make everything go, et cetera. And then the whole kind of middle class of engineers who may be making two, three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars a year. So when you, if your starting point is all of this is going to be automated, that feels like a very big deal. I, I think it is a very big deal. And, and it's, uh, it can be scary to that let's say that elite class, which I, mm. I consider myself a member of, right? Yeah. You know, having worked at places like Google for nearly a decade and did a PhD at Berkeley back in the day, this is my field. This is my profession. Yeah. And so the, the gist of my piece was simply that we as a field, as a community, need to understand what's happening with this AI technology. And look at a future in which programming, as we understand it today, is an obsolete endeavor. I don't believe that means that all these people are no longer going to have jobs. I just think that the jobs are going to change. Mm. And, you know, briefly coming back to my company, Fixie, which is building on that idea and saying, okay, what does the future of software development look like when you can instruct a machine to do it for you using natural language? And how do you right. build software in English and using the powers of these extremely sophisticated natural language models as a kind of core computational platform? Yeah. So that's the, that's the high level of what I've been thinking about and what we're pursuing. So I want to get to what exactly you're doing with Fixie to kind of address this change. I think the thing that struck me, and I'm wondering if you can do it here in a fairly you know simplistic way is talk about you know I was talking to somebody the other day and they said something like 48% of the code on GitHub now is computer generated right which and I don't know what that figure would have been 2 years ago if that would have been zero probably close to zero <laughs> right that kind of hit me and then you had done like a basic calculation of lines of code and kind of cost of processing, et cetera. Could you just kind of walk us through that? Because again, I think there's the theoretical, this is all going to be obsolete. And then there's one layer down of like, let me tell you what's actually happening and possible today. So you understand that this is not just bluster. That's right. So I think this goes in a couple of phases, right? Today you have Copilot, which allows you to, as a, as a programmer, you're sitting in your editor and Copilot is filling out the rest of the bits of code that you start writing. So if I yeah. want to write some code that, you know, is is calling into a library that I'm not familiar with, or just as doing something, you know, routine that is sure I could type out the 10, 15 lines or whatever, but it's something I've done a hundred times before, as have countless other people. Then with Copilot, you just kind of start typing what you want and it's extremely good at auto-completing the rest. And so you can just mm. hit the tab key and then all of a sudden, boom, you're on to the next thing. And sometimes, yeah, you got to go back and read it and modify what's there. So this kind of inline programming assist is a tremendously powerful boost for productivity. And for me personally, is the idea that I don't have to like leave my programming environment to go figure out how to do something. Right. Right. So if, if I'm trying to use a library and I, I don't really remember exactly how to use this library, how to do this thing, there's some canonical way to, you know, write this little bit of code. 
normally I would have to pop out of my editor and go and, you know, do a Google search and, you know, find mm -hmm. a Stack Overflow post and, you know, read the comment section on yeah. some post of, and, and then go, oh, okay, now I got it. Let me go back and, you know, paste in the five lines or whatever that are relevant here. With Copilot, I can stay in the flow and it'll just finish that little bit for me and I can just keep developing. That time savings is huge. And for me personally, because if I leave my editor and go search something on Google, you know, 45 minutes later, I'm probably on Twitter or browsing Reddit or some other website, you know, it's yeah, yeah. an opportunity to get distracted. So that really has been a fantastic boost for productivity. But I think we're going to go far beyond that with the technology capabilities. And we're already seeing glimpses of that with things like ChatGPT. My 13-year-old son emailed me the other day and he said, hey, dad, I'm working on this JavaScript program and I need to do this thing. It had something to do with uh, combining arrays in some way. And, and I'm not like a great JavaScript programmer. I knew that there was a tight and simple way to do the thing that he wanted to do, but I was too lazy to do it for him. I was in between meetings, so I popped over to ChatGPT, literally pasted his email to me into ChatGPT, just mm -hmm. pasted his email and hit return. And, you know, ChatGPT came back with a very nice tight piece of code with the description of how it worked in a test showing that it worked. And I just... <laughs> emailed that back to him and I said the actual piece of code he was asking about exactly what he needed just came right out of it from an English description it's like I've got these arrays and they look like this and I need it to do this and how do I do this right so this is going to be huge for not just professional software developers but for people learning how to program for people that are not necessarily trained as professional developers and i'm excited by this opportunity to open up computing to the rest of the world so just on on that i just want to pause on two points one is so just so people again people who are not programmers github copilot which is a copilot you're talking about starting off was that launched last year i think so maybe a year maybe two years ago yeah and the kind of stat because github is owned by microsoft and microsoft put out the stat to something like People using GitHub are fifty percent, five zero percent more productive using Copilot for the reasons you just laid out, which is obviously a massive change. It's not a ten percent change or a fifteen no, percent change. No, it's exactly. Huge. And then the other thing, the example with your with your son is that you know it kind of like, and this may be a, a kind of a clumsy analogy, but it makes me think a little bit of like what smartphone cameras have done to photography. And like you talk to a photographer, like this has ruined my life because I know everybody's a quote unquote photographer, but it means you don't have to get like a $500 SLR, figure out everything. You just like point to this little box at whatever you want. And then it's just does it. Everyone can be a professional and, you know, so much of programming, you know, my son is a good example of this. Like he understands the syntax and the structure of the language. He knows how to write JavaScript or Python code. But so much of what we do as developers is figuring out how these libraries work and knowing what to Google for when you're not quite sure what you oh, want really? to do. Yeah. So what are the libraries for the uninitiated? What are the, I mean? Yeah. So like, let's say I'm, I'm writing a program and I want to go fetch a document from the web or I want to create a calendar entry or I want to show an image on the screen, 
the programming language itself doesn't support those things. You have to use a library that's written in the language that you can call into that right. does those things. And so much of that just comes from experience of knowing what should I be Googling for when I want to do this particular thing? You know, you have to know the technical language for what it is that you, you're trying to right. achieve so that you find the right thing. And there's a huge gap right now where if I Google for something and I don't quite know what I want, if I don't have quite the right search terms, Google will come back with some results. No matter what you type, Google will come yeah, back yeah. with results. Yeah. It's just that those results just might be not that helpful. They might kind of lead you down the wrong path. You know, you might stumble on a page that says, okay, well, if you want to show an image, then here's like this ton of code you have to write where maybe the answer was really, no, there's a one line of code you can write to do this mm -hmm. with the library, but the page you were reading just didn't happen to know about that. So the unlock is being able to use natural language and it, the copilot, chat GPT, whatever can basically intuit what you need to a very good degree exactly and and sort of solve your problem in a very specific way instead of you cutting and pasting code from someone else that isn't for right. your use case it can be highly tailored to the set of circumstances that you're operating right. in and copilot is operating with the context of i'm already working on this program in this code base i've got all of these other things happening and so the answers that Copilot gives you are not generic. They are highly specific to your need. Got you. That's huge. That's just mm. absolutely huge. So I did some of the math to figure out if you took this to an extreme, how much does it cost to pay a programmer to do this kind of work versus how much does it cost to pay an AI? Yeah. And the back of the envelope calculation is roughly a, a professional software developer might check in. That means write and get submitted to the code base around a hundred lines of code a day. Okay. That doesn't sound like a lot. And the reason it's not a lot is that those hundred lines to get to those hundred lines, you have to design it. You have to work through three or four versions of it sometimes until you've figured out the right, right. way to do it. You get reviews from other uh, engineers on the team and you go back and forth. And so at the end of the day, the amount of code that gets committed to the code base finalized, mm. I'm just guessing is around a hundred lines a day. I could be off by a factor of 10, but my argument is still going to hold. Yeah. Okay. So that hundred lines of code you're getting out of a software engineer who's making, you know, what, two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand $300,000 a year. If you're in the Bay area base. And then the other thing right. is, you know, there's companies like Tata Consulting Services or Accenture who have like hundreds of thousands of people in India and around the world. That's who right. Are kind of like coders for hire. That's right. Well, obviously you get paid a lot less, but you know, there's army like millions and millions and millions of coders for hire at these at these kind of contractor companies. That's right. That's right. So I, I am taking the kind of high end of the the salary range here, but yeah, that's germane to kind of where we are. Right, exactly. Okay, so think about it like maybe a thousand, twelve hundred dollars a day for a professional software engineer in the Bay mm -hmm. Area or in Seattle. Now let's do the math of imagine a future AI model that could do the same thing. Again, it's only generating a hundred lines of code a day. What does that cost? Well, today, using the existing GPT-3 model pricing from OpenAI, 
if you do the math, it works out to about 12 cents. What works out to 12 cents? The cost for paying OpenAI, when, when you use a model like uh, GPT-3, you have to pay OpenAI based on the number of tokens that you send into the model and the number number right. of tokens that it sends out. Gotcha. And if you work out how many tokens does it take to generate roughly a hundred lines of code a day, it works out to be the equivalent of twelve cents. Twelve cents. The twelve cent engineer. And that makes this an extremely compelling financial argument to make that look. If, if a machine can automate these processes and it's 10,000 times cheaper than a human, you have to look at that very seriously. You can't just say, well, no, that's we're not going to do that, right? If it were 20% cheaper, you might say, well, 20% cheaper doesn't make any sense, but 10,000 yeah. times cheaper is compelling. But the question is, is around creativity and composition, right? Because it's not doing uh -huh. that 12 cent engineer, the AI engineer is not coming up with stuff from whole cloth. So how does that factor in? Is it is it the idea of like, say we have an army of 100 engineers, you know, let's call it the middle class, not like the uber, uber, super gifted engineers that people, everyone wants. We can talk about that as a separate kind of class, but like the middle class engineer making 300 grand in Silicon Valley, is it that instead of a hundred, you need three because they can just kind of, they can be like a, a conductor of an orchestra. Right. Yeah. The, the way I'm envisioning the field evolving is that you will have mostly humans that are talking to AIs describing what they want. And this is the mm. currently the, the job description would be product manager. Yeah. And in this case, rather than the product manager talking to the human dev team, they would be talking to a largely AI dev team. And you will need certainly some number of elite engineers, human engineers, red-blooded mm. <laughs> human engineers. Carbon-based life forms. Carbon-based life forms that are doing the high-level design and probably the review of the code that mm. the AI is generating. But that's a much more efficient way of doing things than, you know, waiting for Frank to write this code and, you know, he goes to lunch or he had his you know, ultimate, <laughs> ultimate tournament that afternoon. So he's not going to get to it until tomorrow. Right. Yes. It, it's, it's just going to radically change the way that we approach this. And I appreciate your reference as it's a very West Coast thing, his, his ultimate Frisbee <laughs> tournament. That's a very... <laughs> right. It's pretty, pretty standard, pretty standard. Totally. So that does feel like a... Trying to think of what the kind of equivalent would be or like an analogy. It's really a game changer if you think about... You know, I, there's, a, there's a fascinating documentary that you can watch on YouTube about the last day that the New York Times used... Uh, typesetting machines, linotype mm. machines for doing cast type for mm. laying out the pages of the newspaper. And it's a, a group of almost all men working in this extremely loud and noisy environment with these yep. big complex machines doing all of the laying out of the type and, and mm -hmm. you know, people putting it into wooden frames. And it's a big, noisy messy process with lots of manual labor and the very next day they switched over to electronic typesetting with what we would now think of as a word processor and all of the people working in the typesetting 
rooms had to learn how to do the same job on a computer. And it, it was a really fascinating documentary, but I think it was a, a nice moment in time to see just the moment when that, that shift was mm. happening. And I tend to think we're going to have a similar moment in our industry at some point in the not too distant future, that there's going to be a day when people start to switch over to, okay, the AIs are writing the code now, the humans are mm. doing the design or the guidance or the review or you know whatever it is that is that creative input that needs to be part of that process and the machines will be doing the more manual job of generating the source code itself right do you have a sense of whether your view are like are you like a voice in the wilderness or everybody's like yeah yeah this is how it's gonna go <laughs> reactions to my writing and my talk on this have been uh, quite mixed like everything with ai it feels like at the moment because it feels like things are very 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 charged right now it's mm -hmm. like oh my god this is the beginning of the end of the human race to this is going to destroy entire industries to actually this is going to unleash this whole new era of productivity and this things are going to be wonderful for humans that's from now right on. well my take on that is no matter where your values are on this it's inevitable that this is going to happen to the software mm -hmm. field that the cost savings and the, the accuracy of the models and all of these things are just too compelling for us to ignore this. And I think we as a field just need to be ready for that. But coming back to the reaction, the reactions have been, you know, really of the two camps that many people feel that there's no way that AI will ever do a, as good of a job as people can in this regard. And other people who say, yes, I completely buy your argument. This is no doubt going to be the future of software development. And, you know, time will tell. I, I might end up being wrong that the AIs don't progress as fast as we expect them to, or possibly they kind of settle into a place where they're just kind of barely good enough to do some basic things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not good enough to do anything sophisticated. And and that that's kind of a not a great place to land because... The confidence won't be there that the AI can do a great job across the board. So some people will use it. Some people won't. Yeah. It will be kind of like um, electric cars before Tesla. From where you sit, you've been doing coding for nearly four decades. You obviously have a view as to where this will go. What is that founded upon? In other words, is there any reason from where we sit today into early 2023 where you say, you know, actually there's, we're going to slow down because it feels like the last few months have been so kind of one thing after another, like every week there's some new thing that just emerges. You're like, oh my God, I can't mm -hmm. believe it's doing this now. But is there any kind of technical or kind of programming reason where you're like, okay, well, we've reached this new threshold. Very exciting. And now things are going to kind of just... So, as you say, settle down a little bit, settle in. You know, I think the question is, is there some brick wall coming up that we're yeah. about to hit? And it's hard to see that, in my opinion. So you're right about the pace of innovation here. I mean, one of my colleagues uh, was joking the other day that, you know, one day in AI land is like, you know, seven years in <laughs> the real world because things are happening so quickly. Yeah. So my view is that the only thing that's stopping us from these AI models getting just incredibly good at solving lots of problems in a very general way is just more data and more compute that there's no 
technical innovation that needs to happen to get to that level. And we just need to keep adding more data and more compute. And those things are in abundance. That That's an easy problem to solve. You just build big, yeah. bigger data centers and you harness more data from the internet. At a certain point, the economics don't work out. At a certain point, you run out of data, frankly. But I don't think we're anywhere near that point yet. And just seeing how amazing these models are, I consider GPT-4 as amazing as it is to be in its infancy as far as its capability. Mm. And so in, say, two years, I think we're going to be looking back at the current set of models and, and kind of laugh and say, man, those were so primitive. So 2025, you'll be like, oh, my God, that was such a kind of that was like a stone tool. That, that was so 2023. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And we've seen that progression just all over the place in terms of the field. And I think the reason the field is moving so quickly is is not so much because there's some new clever human intuition going into new techniques or new training mm. methodologies or new data management methodologies. Those things are happening and they are important. But I think the main thing that's driving it is just throwing more resources at the problem. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's a thing that I find a little bamboozling, right? Is that I've been covering tech for many moons and it feels like all of a sudden like AI is here and trying to understand kind of what, and I imagine it's like, you know, scientific progress of any kind of stripe. It's just like lots of stuff is happening in the background and then maybe we've just crossed this threshold of usability and all of a sudden everybody's getting excited about it and it becomes a self-fulfilling thing as more minds and money get thrown at it. But is there, why now? Like, what is what has got us to this point where all of a sudden it feels like, you know, going back to this idea of pace, like literally every week, it's like some new thing is being announced where you're like, I can't believe that's happening. Right. I think there's two factors. I think, first of all, it's kind of like the proverbial, you know, the kindling and the spark, mm -hmm. you know, the technology to develop and train large models has just in the last couple of years become something that is widely available. Uh, these are basically the NVIDIA GPUs. Well, the the, the GPUs and the, the servers and things have been around for a while, but more the software that you build to enable you to scale up and to 
uh, train increasingly large models. For the longest right. time, when you wanted to train an AI model, you were limited to the size of a model that could fit on a single GPU. Hmm. And then some techniques were developed that made it possible to span multiple GPUs in one machine. And then techniques came along that said, oh, let's harness GPUs from across many machines. And hmm. so the model sizes can just grow larger and larger and larger. Right. So that reached a point of maturation where it became easy to scale this stuff up. The other thing that happened, and I think, you know, you, you, a lot of uh, press has been written about this, you know, companies like Google have had this kind of model in their labs for quite a while now, for a couple of years. But it wasn't until OpenAI opened that up and, and made it directly usable by people through ChatGPT that it popularized this idea. And so ChatGPT made this something that anyone could use, anyone could interact with. And unlike a company like Google, OpenAI has no scruples about releasing this to the public. And I worked at Google for a long time, and I am not at all surprised that Google was late to the game because they had been developing it. They'd hired a lot of people. They'd been working on it for quite a long time, but... Google's DNA right now is not about launching things quickly. It's about being very thoughtful and very deliberate about yeah. how to incorporate it into products. And launching anything at Google now, you have to run the gauntlet of however many you know VPs to approve your product launch before it can go out the door. Whereas OpenAI can just flip a switch and say, here it is. We're doing it. Right. We're 375 people. We're not 180,000. That's right. And then the other thing that I'm trying to wrap my head around is like, so OpenAI has kind of, you know, jumped out to this lead. They've raised $10 billion for Microsoft, although I don't know how much of that is cash and how much of that is just like, you can use our servers for free right. or for credits or whatever. But, you know, in the past month, it feels like there's been, so, you know, GPT-4, GPT-3.5, Chad GPT, they're all based on these lar this large language model. There's been probably like 10 other large language models that feel like they've come out of nowhere. And I have not tried them all. From what I have read, they're all, you know, some of them are not as good. Some of them might be a pale comparison, but they're all kind of, none of them are like, this is garbage. Right. And it feels like, like, where's the defensibility there if all of a sudden, like, these large language models, to your point around the compute power and the cost of this stuff dropping dramatically, what does this future look like? Is this going to, you know, is it like, um, could OpenAI become beta to VCR? You know, like, in other words, it's like, <laughs> we are showing the way, but all of a sudden it's like, everybody doing is doing this, and this is a super commoditized layer upon which everybody's building, and it's just going to come down to business model and who has the kind of the business nows to really grab hold of this. It's 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 kind of bamboozling to think about, like, when so many large language models like that seem a lot like ChatGPT are kind of blooming every other week. That's right. I mean, there's been this Cambrian explosion of models coming onto the scene and open source and all of these things. And people have figured out how to get these things to run on individual laptops and phones. And I think somebody had, you know, some version of the Facebook llama model running on a Raspberry Pi or something. Yeah. So it was very interesting to see that. And I think that that's only going to continue. It strikes me that this is not unlike how 
Linux as an operating system kind of took over server computing. You know, before Linux came along, Linux being originally a hobbyist project from a, you know, a student in Finland, before Linux came along, uh, the only way to get server computing was to go to a company like IBM or Sun Microsystems or HP and buy their expensive servers with their proprietary OS. And that was a business model that worked for quite a long time. What Linux did was said, hey, we can bring the same capability to an everyday PC. And companies like Google would not have happened without that because, you know, Google basically built a rack of servers that were running cheap hardware with free operating systems and could just scale that out in ways that really undercut the proprietary server computing vendors. So we may see that kind of shift happen as well, where, you know, OpenAI kind of sparked this revolution, but it becomes democratized and open to the point where you don't need to go to OpenAI in order to get your models anymore. Right. And we've seen OpenAI kind of going up the stack a bit in terms of offering things like the ChatGPT plugins. It's clear that they have a real intention of being able to monetize ChatGPT in a more direct way and diversifying what they're doing. And I think that's smart for them to do. Yeah, because the plugins is basically they're trying to, fair to think of it as like they're just trying to create an app store. That's right. So you can kind of plug your app, Instacart or Uber or DoorDash or whatever into ChatGPT and then kind of just tell your phone like, this is what I want. This is what I want to order. Make this happen for me. And it does it. Yeah, it's a brilliant thing to do because... These language models are so good at translating natural language into instructions for a piece of software. Right. And all you have to do is basically connect up, you know, as you said, like Instacart or Uber or whatever. And now ChatGPT can directly go out and communicate with those things and take action on your behalf. You know, how many years did it take for Google to launch their assistant feature, which would you know, make a phone call to a restaurant yeah. on your behalf with something like this, it's going to be a matter of weeks that somebody comes yeah. up with a integration to chat GPT that calls out to one model to generate the voice and a different plugin to make a phone call and a third plugin to email you back. I mean, these, these integrations are going to be just so much easier to build. And so going back to Fixie, what is Fixie doing? Like, what is it? What is the business model here for you guys? Because I saw you guys just raised seventeen million. That's right. A big announcement in Times Square and whatnot, which seemed like it looked pretty cool. I mean, because it feels like so much is changing so quickly. So you're starting a company right in the middle of this. What's the plan? Right, and interestingly, you know, we were working on this stuff before ChatGPT came out, and all of the things that have happened around ChatGPT and ChatGPT plugins have been really encouraging to us because I, I think it speaks to the the real demand and the interest and the need mm. for something like this. So ChatGPT plugins are awesome and they're right now mainly focused on kind of consumer use cases, you know, yeah. being able to buy groceries through ChatGPT. Where we're focused at Fixie is on enterprise. And so we're looking at this through the lens of companies that want to embed language model capabilities into their own products or their own internal tools or their own internal processes. So you could imagine, you know, a company that uh, acts as a customer support platform where people go to a website, they might type in, uh, I ordered the wrong size t-shirt, I need to get a return, can you please send me the next size up? Right. 
that right now is largely being handled by humans that are mm -hmm. reading and responding to those tickets and, you know, taking some action based on those things. Embedding a language model into such a system would let you automate most, if not all, of the ticket handling process. So you could have the language model notice, oh, this is a ticket about a return. I'm going to call out to the USPS and generate a return label. Or this is a ticket about a product question. I'm going to reach into a knowledge base about all the products that we have and draft an answer directly from that information instead of asking mm -hmm. a human to go look it up and, and write a response. Now, again, like the, the trick is you don't necessarily want to fully replace humans here, but you can take a lot of the manual work off their plate by putting language models into their workflow. So if ChatGPT is about bringing external software tools into ChatGPT, Fixie is kind of the opposite. We're about embedding language models into an existing software product mm. and making that really easy to build and really easy to use. And, you know, we'll see. All of this is, is as you say, moving so quickly that it's not always clear exactly what is what is the right direction, what is the right play. It depends so much on what customers need and where their pain points are. And, you know, I'm reminded of that apocryphal Henry Ford quote, if you ask people what they want, they say they want a, a faster horse. When we talk to customers, they don't even yet know in many cases what they want out of language models. They're not even sure right. what this technology means for them or what it can do for them. And so part of our job is to, to show them that, to partner with yeah. them and, and help them make use of this technology and stay on top of that as it evolves. Well, it's funny. I was talking to a big conglomerate, Asian conglomerate for different projects, different story. They employ 80,000 people across a whole bunch of different, they've got hotels and transport and pharmacies and healthcare. And I was like, you guys should probably have an AI strategy. They're like, we have zero, like we have, <laughs> we do not have one. We have right. like, we're not, it's not even on their radar right now. Right. But even just that customer service function, again, going back to the 12 cent engineer, if you can have one kind of conductor, you know, controlling five or 10 robots as opposed to 10 people in a call center, uh -huh. that probably feels like it could be cost savings as well as potentially, depending on the quality of the language model, a better experience. That's right. And today, the, the field of building around language models is very much in its infancy, that the tools out there are pretty crappy. The ways in which you use these language models, there's a lot of patterns that have yet to emerge about the right way to do this. And I'm reminded by the kind of the beginning of the cloud, where in the early days, this concept that I'm going to let somebody else run my computers, <laughs> and they're not yeah. even my computers, they're their computers and they're also shared with 20 other customers that are using the same computer at the same time how can this possibly make any sense yeah and now that's just how everything is done so the reason that i think that came to be was again that maturation of the market around the technology getting better but also people recognizing how to leverage it in the right ways and that led to companies like you know AWS and Google Cloud and Azure becoming extremely successful.
Have you guys developed your own language model? Or are you using somebody else's to do this or what? So the way Fixie works is we're agnostic with respect to what the language model is. We are experimenting with our own models. We mainly use things like GPT-3, GPT-4, but we also use other models, both open source models and commercial models. And so part of what we're seeing is the choice of model depends very much on what you're trying to do. We don't think that there's going to be just one master model that is the best for all things. I think that's what's really interesting, right? I was talking to somebody and they're like, the, the, the future is bespoke LLM. So like if you are, you could kind of create a language model that is specifically around medical care. That's right. And you train it on literally everything that's ever been written, every textbook, all the nutrition information, everything goes into that and it can help diagnose, suggest treatments, whatever it may be. But like these kind of verticals where you're just like, we're just going to be super focused on this one thing. And hopefully what comes out is useful. That's exactly right. So part of where we're positioning ourselves is saying we want to be neutral with respect to which model you're using. And different companies will want to use different models for different things. And there are going to be companies that have their own models that they want to integrate mm -hmm. into the system. And so... We're acting as a kind of connection layer between the language models and external software systems. So we're acting as a bridge so that your language model can now talk to your database, can talk to your knowledge base, right. can connect into your customer service ticket help desk. And so by acting as that intermediary, we think that we can bring a lot of value because we're solving all of these difficult integration problems, the things that just make it so hard to use this tech. It sounds like your approach here is approaching these language models or AI more broadly as kind of a new layer of infrastructure that is just being built now and that people are trying to figure out how to kind of integrate it. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. Again, coming back to the cloud analogy, I think of language models as really the next computational platform. You know, it used to be you would write programs that ran against, a, you know, a, a computer sitting in a data center. And I think very soon we're going to see people effectively writing programs that the language model is the thing executing the program. The language model is acting as a kind of a virtual machine that you program in English. And when you start to approach it that way, so many things uh, change in terms of your approach to designing software and your approach to managing projects and your approach to managing people. So that's what we see as the future. And so we're basically trying to skate to where the puck is going to be, so to speak. Right, right, right. And we should have done this earlier, but can you just give a brief potted history of you to kind of give people a sense of your experience? I mean, you know, you talked about coding at age nine, but I don't imagine that was the end of your career. <laughs> uh, feels like feels like yesterday. Um, yeah. yeah. So so I, you know, I, I, I did my Ph.D. at Berkeley back in the late 90s, early 2000s in the dot com boom and then bust days. And interestingly, I had a job offer uh, coming out of grad school from a tiny startup that was building this thing called a search engine. This company was called Google. I would have been something mm -hmm. like employee number 400 or something. And you're like, nah, no, there's plenty of search there engines. Were plenty of, that's exactly right. There were plenty of search engines and it wasn't clear that Google was going to dominate. And yeah. I just wasn't quite sure. And so ended up going into academia spent eight years on the faculty at Harvard in computer science and 
doing research and, you know, teaching students and, and publishing papers and the whole academic thing, started a sabbatical at Google. You know, my intention was to be there for about a year and go back to Harvard and continue teaching and found myself at Google building software that was being used by lots and lots of people and mm. realized that was what I really wanted to be doing. And I really enjoy building things that people use and solving real world problems. So spent my time at Google, left Harvard and, and stayed there for about eight and a half years and was leading engineering teams in Chrome, working primarily on making mobile web browsing better for what we called the next billion users. So people in India, sub-Saharan Africa, Indonesia, yeah. and so forth. Then I left Google for a little startup called Exnor that was building AI for embedded devices, and they got acquired by Apple. So I joined Apple and uh, spent just a few months there because I wanted to be back in startup land and hmm. joined an up-and-coming startup here in Seattle called OctoML, which was founded by a, a good friend and colleague of mine who's a professor at University of Washington. And OctoML is building a cloud platform to make it easy to optimize the performance of AI models on different hardware. And that fit right into my, you know, my wheelhouse because I'm a kind of a systems guy and an AI person on the side. And spent about two years there leading the engineering team at OctoML and then left about a year ago to start Fixie. What got you to be like, I'm going to go start an AI company? Because obviously, as you say, this is post-GPT-3, which was kind of fine, but had some problems. And it was months before GPT 3.5 slash chat GPT, which is the kind of the kind of the big bang moment, at least for most people. Why did you leave? What convinced you to start? Well, I always wanted to start my own company. And, and when I joined OctoML, I was thinking about starting my own company then, but then the pandemic hit and I kind of chickened out right. and decided to join someone else's well-funded startup. And frankly, I had a lot to learn about how startups worked on the inside before I could feel confident starting my own. So the time at OctoML, I think, was extremely well spent seeing a company go from, you know, 10 people to 130 people over the span of about two years. It was just an incredible wow. opportunity. And then when I when I started Fixie, the original idea was not what we're doing now. The original idea was let's build AI to help software teams be more productive. So if you think about Copilot is helping an engineer write their code, we wanted to build mm. AI to do all the other things that software teams spend so much time on, like reviewing one another's code or managing dependencies or debugging outages. We started building that. And the thing that we discovered as we started building this was that building interfaces between these AI models and other software tools like GitHub or code or, you know, a database or a cloud vendor was so much easier than we expected it to be. Mm. And that is because these language models have gotten so good at general purpose processing of data. And that was what kind of turned on the light bulb for us around, hey, there's an opportunity here to enable anyone to interface any software tool with the language models and to integrate that into their products. And so that's where the Fixie platform kind of the idea for that came from. Got you. 
And given your career at all these, you know, kind of the who's who of the big tech companies and startups and everything, are you surprised at where we are now in 2023 in terms of these capabilities? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, really? I did not see this coming quite so quickly. Part of it was that, you know, a lot of machine learning and and AI up until ChatGPT was so much focused on problems like computer vision and speed mm-hmm. and understanding speech. And and these models work okay. They work reasonably well. Like I mean, you can buy a Samsung phone today and point it at someone's face and it kind of, you know, makes them look better or whatever the filter ends up doing. So we we've kind of said, okay, that's fine. It wasn't compelling in the same way though. And I think the rise of language models operating on vast amounts of text was a surprising innovation because it wasn't like we had a crude version of that before and then all of a sudden it was chat gpt it was like it didn't exist and then chat gpt came out and all of a sudden this was a thing that everybody could use yeah so yeah i'm completely surprised you know even back at i often joke that i think uh people like me who've been in academia and been in research positions and you know our jobs are supposedly to be on the bleeding edge and being the visionaries mm. and trying to see where the technology is going, I tend to think most people, myself included, are pretty bad about, you know, really seeing the future. So back at Berkeley in the late 90s, you know, our vision of computing that we were doing a bunch of research around involved, you know, people carrying around Palm Pilots using infrared to communicate with a kiosk uh, mounted to the wall. <laughs> Right. And we couldn't even anticipate yeah. the iPhone, yeah. you know, so so the point being that technology, I think, surprises us all. Yeah. And then just lastly, on that, back to that idea of the 12 cent engineer, you know, that's a pretty high, it's a high value profession. It requires a lot of like deep cognition and know-how and all that stuff. There's a whole universe of jobs that don't. Uh-huh. That presumably, if you're thinking about large language models, you know, if we think of language as the kind of the human operating system, Uh and we've just got this new tool to dramatically improve the efficiency and and effect of that operating system, there's a whole, I mean, are you, have you thought at all about like how far this can go or how profound this could be when we think about all of these other jobs that aren't coding, but, you know, similar, you know, in that same vein of whether it's customer service, gosh, any number of things, how profound this shift might be in the, you know, what we might see unfold over the next five, 10 years. I do think that we're, we're in for a major societal shift here. And I think it will not be unlike the industrial revolution. The industrial revolution, it's debatable whether that was a positive thing <laughs> for mm-hmm. human society. But at minimum, we know that it didn't lead to you know widespread unemployment. It led to a complete change in the kinds of jobs we were doing because instead of just being farmers, now we, were, we had people that were designing and building and maintaining and operating machines. And yep. I think that the same thing is going to happen to so many other professions that the AIs will be far better, far more cost-effective, far more precise at performing many of those tasks. You know, think about call centers or even lawyers <laughs> could be automated potentially. My wife is a lawyer and she said she used to work for a big law firm and, you know, 
as a first and second year associate, your job is mainly document review. That's right. Which, you know, you've gone to some very expensive law school, you come out with a bunch of debt, and they charge you, bill you out at three or $400 an hour to read documents for hours and hours and hours to find little kind of like, oh, that's not right, or oh, there's a liability here. But if you have like an LLM or a language model who can just do that in five seconds and you can review it, it's not like we don't, we won't need lawyers. That's right. But they're just going to be doing more high value stuff, or maybe there'll be a lot less of them because, you know, a lot of that low, lower level kind of grunt work, uh, for lack of a better word, it can be done by a computer. I think that's exactly right. And we will see a huge shift in the way that our society works with AI. And I think it's just important that we're starting to get ready for that. We're thinking about it and taking it seriously instead of viewing it as something that we can either stop or slow down or avoid in some way. Have you signed the future of life letter? No, I have not. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that one, actually. Is that the, that's not the slowdown of AI letter, right? That, that was that's the slowdown of no, AI. That's, I, let's see, take I didn't a, know the name of it. Let's take a six month pause. No, I don't, I don't agree with the six month pause because I don't think six months is going to change anything. And I don't think that there's a good expected outcome from that. I would say I am sympathetic towards the idea that we need to allow our understanding of safety and our understanding of security and our understanding of the impact to start to catch up. But I don't think a six-month pause is going to do anything. It's a fascinating conversation, and um, we'll check back in and see how things are going in uh, six months or a year. Great. And see, uh, if, if we're still alive, we might all be dead by then. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> we'll, we'll be around. I'll see you soon. <laughs> And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Matt for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors. That's it for me this week. I am still on holiday. But of course, pick up the paper in the interim because my colleagues write lots of amazing stuff that you guys need to read. But I will be back next week. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening. Thank you. And we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.